Welcome to episode 103, Couple Therapy. Yes, you can bill insurance for it. Here's how. Featuring Barbara Griswold, licensed marriage and family therapist, interviewed by Elizabeth Irias. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, I am delighted to be joined by an expert in all things insurance. Joining us today is Barbara Griswold, licensed marriage and family therapist. I also want to share that this episode is proudly sponsored by Therapy Notes. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. Happy to be here. So um, Barbara is a licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice, and she is a consultant and the author of um, Navigating the Insurance Maze, The Therapist's Complete Guide to Working with Insurance and Whether You Should. Um, They just uh, released their eighth edition of that. And she has done trainings for therapists all over, and this is really her wheelhouse. Um, Today, we're specifically going to be talking about billing for couples counseling as it relates to insurance. Um, Barbara, why why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to have this specialization? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Got licensed actually 30 years ago. I like to tell people I was licensed when I was nine. Um, maybe maybe that's not quite true. And uh, when I started working, I thought, oh, should I join insurance plans? Should I not join? And I thought, okay, I'll just get on as, as many insurance plans as I can. I'll build my practice and then I'll get off of them all. That was my kind of promise to myself because I needed to just get butts in the seats, as they say, basically fill my practice. And, you know, here we are 30 years later and I really still work very heavily with insurance. And what kind of happened over the years is I was working with so many, I was making lots of mistakes. People started to come to me and like, hey, you work with a lot of insurance. Could you tell me how to fill out this claim form? And I was like, sure. And then after a while, you know, we had a lot of therapists in a building. They all started kind of coming to me. And after a while, somebody said, well, maybe you should charge for that. I was like, no, I'm not going to charge other therapists. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I should. This is like taking a lot of my time. And so then it became kind of a consulting thing. And then my colleague and I said, maybe we should do a workshop. People seem like they don't really know how to do this. So back in 2004, I think, we did our first uh, workshop, she and I, and it was completely sold out. I mean, this is back before the internet, practically. We didn't advertise it all on the internet, and we just sent out things by mail. Can you believe this? Yes. And it was completely sold out. We had to turn people away, which was unheard of. I mean, we had really hit a nerve and it was very clear that people just did not know anything about insurance. Fast forward after that, just took off and and started to, after that, wrote wrote a book, which I never thought I could do or wanted to do or... Who, who would have thought that this is an area I was even interested in? But I guess it's something that's just really, I really found a lot of people need to know about. Well, thank you for coming and sharing some of your expertise with us. I know you've been doing this for years and you're highly sought after. Um, so let's start with this topic of couples counseling. Like, let's just dive right in and what you see as like some of the issues when it comes to billing insurance for, for couples counseling. Yeah, I'm really passionate about this topic because I feel like there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, I have seen um, many wonderful therapists who do wonderful work, I'm sure, advertise on their websites or tell uh, that that they do do great couples counseling, but that couples counseling uh, or couples therapy is not billable to insurance. And this is this... Um, makes me a little upset when I see it. Um, Also, I've heard many therapists come to me and and just kind of repeat this kind of um, what I would call fake news. (laughs) I just think it's really really erroneous. It's wrong. And a lot of these people are saying it because they don't understand. And other people are saying, no, we get get it, that it it can be covered, but we don't really... um, like the idea of it being covered kind of and so we we can dive more into that but the bottom line is couples therapy is the way i'm going to use it today is just anytime that someone's coming into seeing you and they they have a they have a coupleship whatever that is gay straight 
premarital, whatever. So there's a coupleship and they want to be treated by you. So, and that's couples treatment. Now, whether or not that's covered by by insurance or not is a second question. Um, you shouldn't be telling people coming in the door that because they want the two of them want counseling that this is not covered. That is that is erroneous. That's wrong. It may it has to has to um, jump the same hoops that individual therapy has to jump for it to be covered by insurance. So it, you have to see once they get in your door <clears throat> or once you screen them on the phone whether or not it'll be covered. But I really, really, really want folks to not be telling couples that couples therapy blanketly is not covered. This is, these people are paying premiums. These people are paying a lot of money sometimes for premiums for insurance, and they should have the right to have the services that are covered by that plan. And you shouldn't be taking away kind of their, um, their, because they're not knowledgeable, you know, we should be the ones trying to help them get their benefits, um, the, the, get the benefits of their benefits. <laughs> so it, it sounds like one of the things you see is just um, unfortunate misinformation by therapists in right out the gate, even on their website saying insurance won't cover this. So let's, let's address that right here, right now. Will insurance cover couples counseling? Sure. Uh, I would say in my 30 years, I've come across maybe, a, well, let's say more recently, because, you know, maybe way back when they, some of them would not cover it. I have in my practice now, I have one person who does not have coverage. I mean, she just doesn't even have coverage for the code for couples counseling. I mean, that's very, very rare that you will see that. So it's one thing to, to talk to a client and say, your particular account does not cover it. But you're, you know, I would, I fall over backwards when I would see that. Um, but for the most part, it's going to be based on what is the person, you know, com coming to see you for. And somebody in the room needs to have a diagnosis. And that diagnosis, for it to be covered by insurance, somebody in the room has to have a, a covered diagnosis. And that just means usually anything more than a Z code, a DSM-5 Z code those things that used to be V codes in the old DSM. So uh, it could be an adjustment disorder. It could be a depression. It could be an anxiety. It could be insomnia. It can be any kind of, kind of low-level medical mental health diagnosis, or it can be something bigger, right? Substance abuse, whatever. But somebody in the room who's covered by the insurance plan has to have that. And um, that's that's the first piece. The second piece is, you know, it has to be believed that this, the therapy is necessary instead of just um, desired. You know, if your clients are just coming and saying, hey, I just kind of want to talk to you about my career or communication or about um, what's the meaning of life as we know it. <laughs> They're not going to cover that if that's all there is. But sometimes people call us up and say, um, I'm coming in for communication issues. And you might say, oh, I don't think this is going to be covered. But then they come in, and as you're assessing them, what happens? You find out that they're abusing drugs or that they're severely depressed or that they're anxious. At this point, boom, you know, this person is coverable. <laughs> so that's why I always say you can't tell people. It doesn't matter what the presenting issue is, what they say to you on the phone. What matters is when you assess your clinical assessment, do you find a diagnosis? And if so, you probably have something that you can bill the insurance for. So when someone calls you and they have insurance coverage, let's say that they are cohabitating or married, they're on the same insurance policy, let's say, and one of the partners calls you and says, we want couples counseling, they come in, you do an assessment. From a billing standpoint, what do you do in that initial assessment if during the assessment you find that there just simply is not medical necessity for billing insurance? What do you do even handling that initial appointment? Yeah, yeah, it's, that, that's a tough one. Um, but let me back up. Both people don't have to be on the insurance plan for you to, for it to be okay. Just the one person needs to have insurance. Um, so it could be that when one person has insurance and they're bringing in their un, uninsured partner or, um, so, okay, so let's say um, 
they come in for couple couples communication and you're you're looking for anything <laughs> that's how i feel sometimes like i'm looking for anything to see if there's something here that's not, um so if i find no kind of diagnosis that really that i could stand behind and i think this is an ethical thing you have to stand behind a lot of therapists here's the other end of the spectrum a lot of therapists are um trying to help their clients by making up diagnoses and so if a couple does come in for just communication issues very often uh, certain therapists will just say well i just always put adjustment disorder with mixed emotional features right and they just do that for all their their couples um you know that's fraud that's just fraud uh, for you to make up a diagnosis and it's dangerous because you're you could be questioned and you should never put a diagnosis down that you can't back up with your notes and that you should, that you, if you were audited in any way that you couldn't say, well, this is why, these are the criteria I saw. So that's the other end of the spectrum. But let's get back to your question. What if I meet with them and um, I find nothing? This is when I have to have the medical necessity conversation with them. And you may wanna have it before they come in. Um, but the medical necessity conversation goes something like this, like, hey, good news, after talking to you, um, it sounds like the issue that you're having is just kind of a communication issue, and that I'm not hearing any, like, diabolical mental health <laughs> issues, <laughs> you know, so yay, yay for you guys that that isn't going on, and it sounds like this is really doable and workable. However, the, the bad news is that this is something that I can't bill for to your insurance because there is no medical diagnosis. There's no mental health diagnosis. And so, you know, this is where you talk to them about that you really want to work with them, that you think this, there would be a great um, couple to work with and that this would be something that they would need to pay out of pocket for. So um, I think it's most insurance plans are not going to pay for that first session because there's no diagnosis. And if you were just to put down a Z code, which is like partner relational problem, um, most insurance plans won't pay them. Someone will for the first, but I, I haven't tested that I have to say. Um, so you, you may want to inform clients, uh, the couple ahead of time before they even come in, um, to, that that may, may be an out, outgrowth. Okay. So you're saying that even before you've seen them, you might have a conversation where you say, um, my standard um, out-of-pocket rate is XYZ number of dollars. And if it's covered by your insurance, then we will bill your insurance. But I need to start by having an assessment with you and it may or may not be covered. Yeah, that w might be one way of, I mean, everyone handles it differently. Um, some people will just, if it's not going to be handled by insurance, maybe they give the client a discount rate or they don't charge them or whatever for the first session. Uh, but it's really up to you what you want to do about that first session. Um, but yeah, it's it's a tough situation. Okay, thank you. So, so both members don't have to have insurance, obviously the one that you're billing for. So in that case, if you have partner A and partner B, partner A is insured, partner B is not. And if you're billing insurance through partner A, I assume then partner A has to be the identified patient. Yeah, let's talk about identified patients. This is a big question I get. So do I have to have an identified patient when I work with insurance? And and the answer is, yeah, but. <laughs> so for insurance, they, you know, they haven't figured out a way. This is what I tell my clients. So look, they haven't figured out a way to put two names in a claim form box as two patient. Um, so for that purposes is the main you know, we need to pick an identified patient. Now I either pick them myself or sometimes I'll talk to the clients about and say, we need to pick an identified patient if they're both covered, both have good benefits, whatever. Um, but typically if I see one person who has maybe more severe um, or maybe only one person in the room has a diagnosis, then they're my identified patient in terms of insurance, okay? Um, and what I would tell people is, a lot of therapists say to me, I am not comfortable with the whole identified patient thing. I don't see my clients that way. I see the couple as my client. Legally, they're both your client. You know, there's lots of ways that this gets very confusing. But I really tell people, look, I, th I think I can hold in the back of my mind that when it comes to billing, 
I can put one person's name in there, in that box, and they're just kind of, and maybe skew the documentation a little bit toward that person's symptoms and why I gave their, um, what, what's going on with them. So if I'm giving them an anxiety diagnosis, then maybe throughout the documentation, I'm going to be following up on her anxiety a little bit more than the other dynamics. But in my mind, of course, I can see this theoretically any way I want to, which, and, and insurance plans know this, that you see probably from a systems point of view, that you see this as a dynamic. You don't have to give up your uh, held beliefs about how uh, couples work. It's just a matter for um, for just like putting in the bills that there has to be identified person in the room who has a diagnosis and that's who you're billing under. And when, so you said when you're documenting, you said you skew it toward the identified patient. And obviously that does not include fabricating any symptoms or diagnosing something that isn't justified, as you said, making sure that the session is appropriately documented by your notes. When you say skew, can you give me an example of that on like what that would look like practically in session and how you would document that differently depending which partner you were focusing on? Sure. So if um, <laughs> I ha for example, if I've given the client uh, the identified patient is the female, let's say, and she has a anxiety diagnosis. It's just going to be in my mind that in, in almost every progress notes, the word anxiety is probably going to have to appear. <laughs> so it might be worked on communication issues with her partner uh, in order for her to better communicate her anxiety. Or it might be work so he could better respond to her anxiety. Or it could be, I mean, or this week she reports her anxiety is worse than last week. You know, it could just be somewhere in there. I'm telling the, the insurance plan, I'm monitoring for my diagnosis. I'm figuring she, this week she dealt with her anxiety in this way. But that doesn't mean that you pretend that there isn't someone else in the room. You know, what what's going on that week is still very vital between them, how you handled it. Um your progress notes have to cover basically symptoms, severity, your interventions, a whole bunch of other things, um, which if you aren't too happy with your progress notes, con contact me. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll work with you around that. But um, yeah, I, I think don't feel like you have to leave out the partner. It's just that make sure that you're covering the diagnosis particularly and what's the status of that that identified patient, maybe a little bit more than the partner. Okay. And here's one of the other things that I've also heard as someone that, that does clinical documentation trainings. How do you document couples? Do you need to keep multiple charts? And, and I'm going to preface this, Barbara and I are both in California. So we're speaking about California-based laws and kind of expectations and rules and regulations. Um, so just for anybody listening that's not in California, but Barbara, please chime in on how to document a couple's session when you are seeing two people. Well, I think there's two main issues. Um, should you keep a blended chart? That's a question for everybody in every state. I would say many, many people um, keep a blended chart, meaning that you put all the notes um, from those couple session in one chart. That's that's probably the easiest thing to do. That's, the, that's what I do. Um, keeping a note under the one partner's name and the other name and having two charts seems a little bit hard to do, time consuming, and I'm not sure all the reasons why you would do it because, which we'll say in a minute, um, there's legally, it's gonna still be a mess. Um, <laughs> um, and because the, the note itself is gonna be blended. You're saying things like, you know, she said this, and in response to that, he said this. So I don't know how you separate that note. You can't like make it appear like they weren't in the session together. Um, treatment plans is the other question. Like, so that that I think is something that's not a state by state. Treatment plans, whether they're required to be separate, do, do I need a separate treatment plan for each one? Um, no, not by the insurance plans. They want just a treatment plan for the identified patient. Um, so that's a good news, I think. Um, 
And so they just want to know, like, how is the couples counseling helping this person get out of their anxiety? Or what is what is what is your goal by bringing in the partner? And not every goal in there has to be couples therapy related, but just basically um, why kind of somewhere in there, why bringing in the couple, the, the partner is, is helping um, to, to reduce the, the identified patient's symptoms. Um, the part that does vary state by state is, is going to be just who gets to release the records. And I know here in California, they actually both need to um, give permission to release records. So that's kind of something that you need to get up front <laughs> um, permissions for any possible future release. Um, I mean, up front, if you think you're going to need to talk to the insurance plan, if you're going to need to do a treatment review, an administrative review, I'd be getting all that right up front. Like, hey, I each one of them should sign. I give permission for any future treatment reviews or, you know, administrative audits or just for claims from both of them. Got it. Thank you for clarifying that. And then, of course, making sure at the onset that that each person in the couple signs, if, if you're working with insurance, signs any HIPAA related paperwork, does a, they basically do a chart creation for each partner in the sense that both have signed all the consent forms and you've had that conversation with everyone. Um, certainly I've encountered people that will be seeing a couple or a family and only one person actually consented. So making sure that in a blended chart, both parties or all parties have consented and signed any necessary paperwork, just as you said, to make sure that it's taken care of at the outset. Yeah. And also like sometimes people are working with a female or let's just one member and then they're like, oh, I want to bring my husband in. And they're like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. And the husband comes in, but you, he hasn't signed anything that says, I understand the limits of confidentiality or anything you need anyone who walks into your session needs to have signed a treatment agreement or informed consent so remember that sometimes it shifts and you don't even think about like oh that person should be signing some documentation here because later something comes out in that session and you're like oops i need to make a cps report or i need to <laughs> and he didn't know when he said that what his rights were so Absolutely. Thank you. And I have another quick question about that. So let's say that you're seeing an individual and that person, he says, you know, I, I've been arguing a lot with my partner and I'd like to bring him in for session. When do you make the determination, basically from a coding standpoint, when does something become quote unquote couples counseling? And when does it become basically a collateral session with a client or patient present? How do you make that determination? So I'm going to run this down. It's actually super easy, but everyone gets it wrong. Not everyone gets it wrong. Once you know it, let's put it this way. It's easy once you know it, of course, which is like everything. But it, because again, these are areas that we don't just, uh, we sometimes just ask somebody else in our suite and they actually are doing it wrong. And so now we're doing it wrong. And then we tell somebody else. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. So let's clarify exactly coding for couples. And I'll go as quickly as I can. The first session should always be a 90791. That is a diagnostic intake. So you do that with your individuals, you do it with your couples. That's basically a history taking session. So a lot of people don't do this with couples. They don't realize that's a diagnostic session. And the reason you should do it is that sometimes it's paid more. <laughs> and it also is the most accurate um, code for that. So that's a CPT code 90791. And some insurance plans are gonna pay more to you or to your client if you're giving out super bills. The next session, let's say you do, um, you, you decide what I want to do after that first session, I want to meet with each partner individually. So let's say you bring in your identified patient first. For that session, it's just you and the identified patient. It's an individual session. That's what it is, right? You don't have the other person in the room. So you don't, can't use the, the uh, CPT code for family therapy, use an individual therapy code. So those would be a 90834 or a 90837 if you do a 60 minute. 90834 is your 45 minute session, which is 38 minutes to 52 minutes, or you're going to use your 90837, which is 53 minutes and above. 
There's also a shorter one, 90832, but most of us don't use that one because it's for such a short session. Um, so that's for that session. Let's say the next session you bring in your non-identified patient. You just want to meet with the other person alone once, maybe get a little history. For that one, you're going to use a 90846, and that's family therapy without the identified patient or family couples patient. Uh, and I get this sometimes, well, hey, there's only a family therapy code. There's none that say actually couples. No, the one that says family therapy is also a couples therapy code. So 90846 is couples therapy or family therapy without the identified patient. And then let's say the next session you have, here we go, you're going to start your couples counseling going forward, your couples therapy. That's going to be your 90847 each time. Now, a lot of people say, well, oh, wait a second, I've been using the 90837 uh, or the 90834 each time. Um, why is that? There was some confusion when, with co when codes changed back in 2013. For a period of time, the title on that code was with or without the family for that individual, it said with or without your family present. So people suddenly went, oh, wait a second, I can use that one. I can use these codes, which sometimes paid more, these individual therapy codes, I can use those for couples family sessions. But then in 2016, they were, you know, they got so many complaints like, well, then when do I use the family therapy codes? It got very confusing. They came back out in 2016 and said, oops, sorry, that was confusing. These are the individual therapy codes, the 90834, 90837, and this they are only meant to be used for individuals. And if a, an informant joins the session, so if you have like ongoing individual sessions, I know this is kind of hard to follow, but if you're seeing somebody individually and then you're like, like a, a child individually and you just want to bring mom in at the end of the session or dad in at the end of the session that you could still use the individual therapy code. Or maybe you bring in mom or dad once a month or something like that, that you could still use the individual code. That was our idea that, that, that they're just like an informant. But if you're doing ongoing couples or individual, excuse me, couples therapy or family therapy, you stick to the the 90847 couples counseling code, even though a lot of insurance plans pay less for couples therapy, which is shocking to me. I don't, I don't know what to tell you, except that it's a 50 minute code for that one versus a longer 90837, which is a 60 minute code technically. So, and that's going to lead me to another question. What do you do when you see a couple for 80 minutes? Ah, uh, this is a whole big thing. They've done away with any codes for longer sessions, really insurance plans and, and the, don't really want you to do long sessions. Let's start there. <laughs> um, and actually some insurance plans like United Behavioral Health and United Healthcare and Optum don't even want you to do the 60 minute sessions. If you're doing that regularly, they're gonna look at you and audit you and say, hey, this is only to be reserved for, you know, special cases like uh, EMDR or trauma-informed therapy or something that needs to take longer. So some insurance plans are down on the 60-minute, um, but uh, the 80-minute ones um, or 90 minutes or 100, some people do 120, two hours, whatever, um, are usually not supported by insurance plans. The You could try... Um, billing for a 90847, two units or three units or whatever. But the bottom line is most insurance plans will only cover one in a day. Um, so if you build for, let's say, two units of, they would probably just come back and pay one and just disallow the second one. Um, and so it doesn't matter kind of how long. Now, the only thing that I could encourage you to do is, and this is something that people don't do often enough, and I think it's a real option, is to tell your client that you your insurance cover, will cover the first 50 minutes. That's what that's what a, and um, if if we clinically think that it's the best thing to do is to do a longer session, um, we can contract write a contract um, that I call a private pay agreement to cover the extra time. And you have to lay out 
this isn't going to be billed to insurance or that second part. You're going to have to pay the copayment from the first part of the session, and then you're going to have to pay X amount of dollars for the, the extra time. And um, you agree in advance to this. And the insurance plans I've talked to have said, yeah, they, they would support that if the client has in writing agreed to that ahead of time um, that you can in, indeed and now I would also, they also say they would like you to charge the discounted insurance rate for that ex extra time, which I think is okay. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I'd rather be on the side of, and that way the, the client gets what they need. They're buying extra time from you. You get paid for that extra time. So I, I see that private pay agreement as something um, really worthwhile. Um, I have a sample in my, the back of my book. Um, and I also have a sample in my private um, practice forms packet. So if that's something that you're interested in, I have those samples available. Great, thank you. Um, so what, <laughs> I'm, go I'm going to throw another curveball at you just because I'm curious what your response is. I have certainly had it happen in couples or family sessions where you're in session and then whatever the topic is comes up, and it descends into a crisis session that there's, you know, a, 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 a situation arises or something comes out where you recognize, okay, you need a pivot from doing couple or family work to individual crisis stabilization, and that that could go into a long session. From a billing standpoint, what do you do with that? If you saw a couple for 45 minutes and at the 46 minute mark, somebody says, this is what I'm thinking of doing and I plan to do it later. And then you go, uh oh, <laughs> and now you've gone into crisis. <laughs> From a billing standpoint, you're kind of in a good place because um, there is a, th a third option for, um, well, there's probably more, but um, you can now bill this as a crisis session. Um, and crisis sessions are more likely to be covered. And in terms of for a long session. So you bill a 90839 for a crisis session, and then you add a 90840, which is 30 minutes past the crisis session. And then you can keep adding a 90840 if you keep going 30 minutes longer. And more insurance companies will cover this than uh, other types of things. So you can't add the little if, it, if the first part wasn't a crisis and then the second part, you know, uh, was, you can't really add the 90840 onto a regular code. So I would just go ahead and make the first session code into a couple uh, crisis codes. So the 90839 and then 90840 and add on for as long as you guys uh, continue to meet with the client. So in some ways it kind of helps you get coverage for a longer session that you might have done for a crisis. Got it. Um, thank you for breaking that down. And I mean, of course, there are so many ins and outs and variables that you and I could talk about and wanting to cover some of them so that so that we can let our listeners have an idea of how to approach this kind of from a practical standpoint. Um, so let's talk about seeing somebody for individual or if they have another individual therapist, maybe that isn't you. Um, and now you're seeing a couple how does that come into play with billing and utilization? Is it an issue for a client to be going to individual sessions with therapist XYZ across town and then be coming into couples counseling with you? Are you more likely to get a denial because they're already doing individual work? Like, how does that work? I would say for the most part, no, it doesn't figure it into it at all. They, they know it's a different animal and they know that, um, they're really looking at your utilization versus overall. I mean, possibly if the if they really may maybe way down the line where this person's been in for a long long time and they feel like between their couples counseling and yours it's really a lot for the diagnosis level like if this person has a severe diagnosis I'm, i think you're going to get supported and you can back it that's not going to be a problem if this person has an adjustment disorder and they're seeing the other person twice a week and you twice a week, <laughs> you know, they might be like, huh? Um, but again, they're more curious. And I, I look at treatment reviews like 
you just need to explain why you're doing what you're doing. And if you have faith in what you're doing makes sense, you just need to approach it like, like that. You just brought up another question for me, which is frequency. Um, we came, someone at some point made this arbitrary determination that couples counseling or not just couples, but any counseling occurs once weekly, you know, unless we go way back and you look at Freud, in which case it's seven times times a week. But what, what is the insurance expectation in terms of how often couples counseling can occur? When is um, too much, too much? Well, I don't think they have a number. Um, they certainly, certain plans are, they all vary. Certain plans are going to check with you uh, and it's going every once in a while and it's going to depend on diagnosis and it's going to depend on how many sessions you've used in what period of time. Certain plans might have a, you know, if you've used more than 20 sessions in three months or something like that, they might check in with you like, hmm, that seems like a lot. Um, so, they're not, if you like have a client who's in crisis and you're seeing them every, twice a week for a period of time, they're probably not going to come down on you. If that goes on for six months, they might kind of you might hear have a phone call that says, "Hey, what's going on?" But it, again, it's a "what's going on" question. It's not a "you can't do that" question. It's what's happened that you're you know. And if you can defend it, sometimes they'll say, "Well, you know." You, if you don't do a great job defending it, um, I've heard therapists say, well, I, he he wants to have more sessions a week because he really enjoys our sessions. Yeah, not, they're not going to pay for it. He really enjoys our sessions and gets a lot out of them. Unless you can say, again, that's, that goes back to feeling like the sessions are medically necessary versus feeling like they're just something that the client wants. So you're going to have to learn to defend that. I, you also wanted to talk about uh, telehealth, you said. Yes, yes. Um, so let's talk about that because goodness knows right now, as you and I are recording this, it's the middle of August. So many of us are doing telehealth. So when it comes to billing for couples counseling sessions, what modifier um, do we use? How does that change? What what guidance do you have about that animal? Yeah. So a lot of people are getting... Um, their claims denied and they're not sure why. And a lot of it is because they haven't really been following um, how you build differently for telehealth or they're, again, we have that lovely misinformation or they're guessing, which <laughs> not good. Any of those things never make assumptions when it comes to insurance. So how do you bill for a telehealth session? Number one, what CPT code do you use? Well, people are looking all through the manual trying to find it see the video sessions um, or the phone sessions um, codes. And here's here's the great answer. Number one, you use the same CPT codes that you use if the session was in person. So if you did a 50-minute session, you're going to use the 90834. If you did a 60-minute session, so you figure out if you did a couples, it's going to be a 90847 probably. So yeah, you get to use the same CPT code. You don't have to learn a whole new set of codes. However, if you think about that, well, if you submitted that, how would the client, how would the insurance plans know it was a telehealth session then? There's three ways. Number one, you're going to probably need to change the place of service code. This is a code that um, goes on the CMS 1500 form and it told, tells them where the session took place. Now, this is where you were putting an 11 um, if you were filling out the form yourself and check into if you have something uh, like a, a form filling software or something like that, um, practice management software, kind of make sure that the place of service code is zero two for most insurance plans. Zero two means telehealth, not 11 for office. Now, you notice I said most insurance plans. Just to make this complicated, some insurance plans are requiring you to continue to use 11 as office even though you did telehealth. And the ones that I'm aware of are Regents plans, Medicare, and TRICARE. So a lot of people got their Medicare ones paid at the wrong rate because they used the telehealth. Makes sense, right? Um, but the most important thing is call each plan you work with to be sure what the, that is that they want you to use. I've also created an online resource for all the plans that I know of and what the codes are that they want. And that's at 
theinsurancemaze.com backslash telehealth policies. So theinsurancemaze.com backslash telehealth policies. And I've done a plan by plan list of all the, you can just go to there and, and scroll down to Aetna or Cigna or whoever you're working with, and it'll take you to their web page, which will tell you exactly what codes um, you should be using. Or go right to the, the web page themselves, and some of the, the plans are posting the, the codes they want you to use. Now, that's the one, one way they can tell. The second way is they're, they're going to ask for a modifier, typically. A modifier is a two-digit code that goes after the CPT code on your claim form. And the one that's most commonly asked for is 95. Some of them will accept a GT, which is an old modifier. And this just means video or phone. So 95 should be on there. And sometimes they'll reject it without that modifier. So it's essential that you put that on. Some plans don't need it. Some plans, but why not put it, right? And if you are doing an invoice, if you're out of network, you should add a column for place of service code and add a place, if you can, for... Um, modifier or write-in modifier. And then you should also say, instead of writing psychotherapy 45 minutes, write in the word video or phone or something. So they should, if you have a description, add, it, add, that, add that in the description. Got it. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, if you don't mind, um, let's talk about the insurance expectation for the use of video versus phone when we're using telehealth. Um, so if you are using, regardless of the location code, but if you're billing, quote unquote, telehealth, what is the standard expectation from an insurance company in terms of what that means? Right now, I mean, standard, standardly insurance plans don't usually cover phone at all um, for a number of reasons, I'm sure, which I don't know. But <laughs> um, I'm sure that there's lots of reasons that they can say, look, if you can't see your client, you can't see their reactions, you're, it, they're, they're more worried about liability and quality of therapy and all those reasons. Uh, during the pandemic, almost all the insurance plans have done away with those limitations and you're able to see phone because they know, able to see phone, you're able to do phone sessions with your clients. They know that many clients, and this is true for me, I've got some clients who are not technologically hooked up uh, or just not technologically savvy. They don't have um, a young person in their household who can help them, <laughs> whatever the issue is. So I'm doing some phone sessions with folks. And, you know, you pretty much code it the same way. So in terms of there's most of the plans, there's like one plan I know of that wants a different code. So for the most part, they're indistinguishable in the way that you're going to build them. But, you know, when the coronavirus is over, uh, and I think you need to really watch my watch your each one of these plans you need to call them you need to look at my website like when is it over this wonderful coverage that they have right now and when are they going to go back to whether they're even covering telehealth at all or what when they're covering phones or and and right now they're not even covering some of these plans don't cover out of network providers so if you're an out of network provider providing uh, couples therapy or individual therapy um, they may not be covering you or you may have found that. So, you know, it varies by plan. Some plans are very rich and welcoming to telehealth and some are less, less so. So let's talk about kind of the do's and don'ts. You've talked about some of the do's. Let's talk about the don'ts when it comes to billing insurance for couples-based sessions. So one of the questions that, um, that I've heard before, can we bill each partner's health plan separately for a couple session? <laughs> I actually just got someone asking me that today via email. Um, no, you cannot. The If you think about it, you are double dipping. You are trying to get paid twice for the same period of time that you spend in session. Um, this happens all the time. And I actually saw one time where the husband and the wife were both billing their health plans. I mean, the therapist was giving them each an invoice. They were turning it into their health plan. The health plan got wise to this and made them give back thousands and thousands of dollars over the course of, you know, long time. So 
this is really not something that you can do. And it's the therapist should not have given out more than one invoice. You know, um, there should be an identified patient and that identified patient is the only person who can turn in an invoice. The only way you can double bill for the same session, and I'm loosely saying double bill, is if you turn it in, if let's say your identified patient is covered by um, two insurance plans, you know, you bill the primary insurance first and it comes back and they paid everything, but let's say $10, you could turn around to the second insurance, secondary insurance and say, and then you have to put the information with the primary paid, hey, they paid everything but $10. And then the secondary could say, okay, well, we'll pick up the other $10. Uh, so you can do it, but it has to be sequential and you have to let each plan know uh, that there is another plan involved and what the other person paid if, if, if it's a secondary. So you just addressed this double dipping idea of billing two separate insurance policies for a single couple session. What about longer sessions, knowing that particularly with couples, sometimes you want to have more time? Is it okay to bill one, you know, partner A's insurance company for the first 45 or 50 minutes and then partner B's for the next 45 or 50 minutes? Yeah, this is a great question. I get asked this a lot. And, you know, there's a couple problems with that that I see. Number one, if you've been working all along as you've chosen an identified patient and then you start doing, you'd, you'd have to have two identified patients. First of all, they would both have to have diagnoses for you to even consider this. Um, and then what you're, then you'd have to have separate charts because you're going to, for the first session, part of the session, um, and you're going to have to have separate treatment plans because these are, you're looking at them now as you have two identified patients for the first um, hour, or let's just say, for the first 50 minutes, you're focusing on one person's identified patient and the, her diagnosis, let's say the female, and uh, then you're you're going to be addressing that in the session and you're going to have interventions that are um, focused on her diagnosis and you and your your session notes are going to be all about that and then ding 50 minutes you're going to suddenly kind of focus on the other person's um, diagnosis you're going to on their treatment plan and advancing the treatment plan interventions are going to be all about their diagnosis a little bit more um, if you did, let's say a, a hundred minute session and you did 50 of each, you're asking, can I bill it that way that, that there were two separate sessions of 50 minutes each? Is that really what happened? Or did you do a hundred minute mixed session? Um, to me, this feels like, I don't like that the insurance plan won't accept a hundred minute session. So I'm going to kind of misrepresent what actually happened. Unless you did what I just described and you can back it up in your documentation, it feels a little bit disingenuous. It feels a little unethical. Um, so um, I would say think carefully before you do that. It's not necessarily unethical, but again, your documentation and has to back it up. Your treatment plan has to back it up. And in the session, even, um, I think you I, you have to think carefully about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the consequence of what might happen if you did that. So let's pretend that you uh, build partner A, bar build their insurance for the first 50 minutes, and then build partner B's for the second 50 minutes. You didn't have separate charts, and you you personally see partner A as the identified patient. What what are the potential consequences of billing partner B's insurance for that additional 50 minutes? If that goes sideways, like let's just outline kind of here here's where this goes wrong. What could happen? <laughs> well, I was telling you a story earlier that um, it was slightly different than this, which was that the insurance plan had been billed for extended sessions and given both I guess it was for, this, for the same sessions, kind of by both the husband and the wife in the situation. And the insurance plans 
caught on to this and did kind of an audit and they did not like this whole thing. And they asked for thousands of dollars back from the client, it turned out, because they had paid the client, re reimbursed for those sessions. Um, so yeah, this can have huge financial consequences if it's not done right and ethically. Um, in this case that I think I was mentioning, the therapist had given a super bill to both each one of the people for the same session. So it's a sl slightly different, but... Um, in this case, too, you, I think you have to be very careful um, that everything is ethical and square and that your documentation backs up what you did. But overall, I think they might see it as you're just trying to get around um, uh, something that we're trying to tell you we don't want you to do. I certainly wouldn't do it if you were billing both of the same insurance plan, <laughs> you know, um, so that probably wouldn't be a good idea. So um, in the example you gave a few minutes ago, that if you if you are documenting to the identified patient who is person A, and then you bill person B for the second half of the session, and there's a records request from the insurance company, from insurance company B, they're going to basically look at it and it's like, okay, my my covered member doesn't have medical necessity, their partner does. Right. So that's why I said the only way you could do this would be if each person has medically necessary diagnosis, each one has a separate chart, um, and you're billing each one of those for a 90847, um, but you're able to document how that those couple sessions that you did, the back-to-back -back ones we're talking about, um, are the and they just happen to take place on the same day back-to-back, -back, and you make it as if, you know, that that particular part of the session is addressing that diagnosis and treatment plan. I think you'd be okay, but it's still a little stretch and I'm not sure if I'd want to go out on that limb. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily pass the smell test, so to speak. Um, one of the things that I know to be true about these kind of uh, issues, um, when we're talking about medical necessity and appropriate billing, the threat that looms largest is the possibility of a recoupment or simply failure to pay at all. Um, but also I want to specify for our listeners the possibility that if, if we really, really made an insurance company mad, they can always refer for a law enforcement uh, investigation. And while that does not happen often, it can happen. And that's when we get into what I call the not fun F word, um, which is fraud. Um, Barbara, are there any other examples that come to mind as we're talking where therapists have unknowingly, oftentimes, and sometimes intentionally, but often unknowingly committed fraud in their billing practices relating to couples and families because they simply didn't know, um, or again, I mean, We'll just say they didn't know that they were doing it incorrectly. Um, there's, there's um, sometimes things that are, let's say, I, I would say they're, they're things like overdiagnosing or underdiagnosis. Um, when you put a bigger diagnosis than the client actually has because you want to have them get more sessions, um, um, that it, so that goes back to what we were talking about before, like if they only have a, a Z code of some sort and you actually put down something more than you have. So that would be what I'd call overdiagnosing. Underdiagnosing would be, conversely, this is one less known about, you know, if your client has a substance abuse disorder and um, you think, I don't really want to put that on their files, that's like, oof. Um, or maybe they have a borderline personality disorder and you're like, I don't want to put that down. Maybe they'll see it. Um, so you just put a little adjustment disorder or something. Um, actually, that can be fraud because you're not informing the insurance plan about the full extent of this person's um, illness. And they may have made different reimbursement uh, decisions had they known the full extent. So for example, had they known this person had a substance abuse disorder, um, perhaps they would have said, look, we don't want to support once a week therapy for eight years. We want this person to be evaluated at a, you know, um, substance abuse treatment facility, or perhaps they would have kind of checked in with you and said, what, what are you doing about that substance abuse thing? Has they been, have they been referred to 12 step program or whatever? So sometimes just hiding a diagnosis 
can be one thing. Obviously, we think of fraud, we think of billing for a missed session, or we think of, um, and that happens too. You know, we we have the sense of the insurance plans are so rich they could, and I sat here and you know was waiting for the client, and of course they should be billed. Here's a um, interesting little one though that most of us are doing. And a point I really want to make is we all should be di we should all should be documenting start and stop times of our sessions. This is so crucial right now. This is like the biggest documentation issue right now. And this does not mean writing down that you did a 50 minute session or a 60 minute session. And it doesn't mean that you should be writing one o'clock to 155 every single time. It's not believable. I've seen times where insurance plans have come back and said, we don't believe you, and because of that, we are going to initiate a, you know, an audit based on. I mean, they did the audit, and the audit came back that we don't believe you, and we're asking for money back. And one of the things that they listed it was not the only thing, was that this person, every single time, had a one o'clock to one fifty-five, one o'clock to one fifty-five, and they said this is just not believable. We think you've cloned records, um, so. Basically, if you think about it, I doubt every time your client was exactly on time and that you were exactly on time. So come on, write down 102 to 156 <laughs> every once in a while, or you were there a little early maybe. Now, the second part of that is that once in a while, your client's probably 10 minutes late or maybe 15 minutes late, right? Or maybe you had some transmission problems or whatever. If you don't start the session, and remember, you can't count time that you were documenting the session or scheduling it or they're waiting in your waiting room whether that's online or here um, you, you if they join let's say 10 or 15 minutes late and you only have a 45 minute session you should be billing for a 45 minute session instead of a 60 minute session if that's what you had put aside and you're going to tell me well that's not fair <laughs> i was here i shouldn't get down but you can't build a plan for a longer session than you actually provided. And that's another kind of fraud. The downside is that as far as our most of our contracts say, we're not supposed to bill our clients anything but their copayment or anything. But so it is remains unknown to me um, even what we do with that 10 minutes. Can we turn around and bill our clients if we get their, that in writing up front? Um, like if you're more than five minutes late, I'm going to have to bill you at a rate of blah, 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 blah. I don't know. Um, this is, or every once in a while, do I just need to eat 10 minutes? So that's something to think about. But they're going to be, it's going to be more believable. If every once in a while they see your 90837 is downcoded to a 90834, do you see what I'm saying? You need to have like credibility. Well, it sounds like, again, it's not an issue of whether or not you're altering any record, but just making sure that you're reporting accurately what happened. So if the client was 10 minutes late because they were stuck in traffic, um, then making sure that you're appropriately marking that the session started at 1.11 and not at 1 p.m. I think that's a great point that you just brought up. Um, certainly you and I could keep talking about all of these different nuances of couples counseling and you've, co you've covered so much in this hour. Um, Barbara, I want to um, invite you to tell us basically where do you get your information from? Where, what resources do you recommend? And then also how do people get in touch with you? Because you, you really are, are one of the experts when it comes to staying at the front end of what's going on in the insurance world. Yeah. Most of my, um, information comes directly from insurance plans. So I'm on, you know, my daily inbox is full of <laughs> provider newsletters from <laughs> insurance plans. Uh, some of it is from providers across the nation send me things, which is awesome. They're like, guess what? You know, tiny insurance plan is doing and they send me like a cut and paste and a link. Um, there are certain coding seminars that I certainly attend, but they're not ones that providers would. I wish there were like really good things that providers could tune into to, to know. So what I try to be is kind of that source of, hey, guess what? The CPT codes change every year. Did you know that? And here's the ones that are going to affect us. Um, people don't really know that they're updated or the diagnostic codes change. And some of those, and some of them keep using old diagnostic codes. Um, 
I think recently the the ones for pa certain panic disorders changed and and don't, don't all flood me there this was many years ago but I'm just saying a lot of people kept using the old um, codes so that's why I tell people look if you subscribe to my e-newsletter I'm gonna keep you up to date with that kind of stuff I'm gonna tell you hey guess what stop using this code it's no it's a common code that everyone uses but it's no longer active or hey there's been a change in the CPT codes or like we said the, they've been clarified you can't use these for couples counseling Awesome. Um, thank you for that. I think that's a great piece of advice. And and then I'm sure that our listeners, if they're on panels, can request to be added to that newsletter, just like you are, so that they can have a, a um, direct channel with their insurance company. And also for our listeners, we have a podcast on here by David uh, Nefusi, which is called Managed Care 101, that it also talks a little more in detail of some of these themes, not specifically relating to couples, but also this idea of here's what not to do with insurance companies and being careful about the same points that Barbara brought up about things like double billing. So again, Barbara, just for our listeners, your email address and your website, please. Ah, yeah. My email address is, is barbgriz, B-A-R-B-G-R-I-S, at AOL.com. Yeah, I'm the only one still on that. Um, so B-A-R-B-G-R-I-S, barbgriz, at AOL.com. And my website is theinsurancemaze.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Barbara. And again, for our listeners, her book is called Navigating the Insurance Maze, The Therapist's Complete Guide to Working with Insurance and Whether You Should. Uh, thank you so much, Barbara. We've covered so much and it's been illuminating for me and I imagine for our listeners as well. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.